0: Following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. All right, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 13. And if you're able, please stand with me as I'm going to read Romans 13, 8 through 14 today. It's about paying the debt that we owe, the debt of love. So Romans 13, beginning at verse 8. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And Lord, I pray that you would have your way in our hearts this day, that we would believe what you have said, that we would obey it in your strength, all for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So Romans 13, 8-14 is about paying the debt that we owe, the debt of love, and none of us like debt. Everybody hates debt, some people live in a lot of debt, but love is a good debt. It is a good debt that we owe everyone, and it is due to the gospel, it is due to Christ's love in the gospel, and so we have this overriding obligation to love everyone. Now, I know this passage today gets overlooked in favor of more well-known passages such as Romans chapter 3, chapter 8, chapter 12. But it's a game changer. I'm telling you, if you take it to heart and you put it into practice, it will ignite a wildfire of change in your heart, in your home, and in the household of God. It is that important. It is that important. And we have been seeing in chapter 12, and now in chapter 13, what does it mean to have a renewed mind? What does it mean for the gospel to change you in such a way that your mind is renewed, that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to renew your mind? What does that mean? What does it look like? Now, what we've seen so far is that it changes your mindset about everything. It changes the way you think about everything. And so here in this passage today, God says love is necessary, absolutely necessary. And so our minds need to change about love. A lot of us misunderstand love. We need to know what true love is. No one ever required love of his followers the way Jesus did. No greater expression of love than the cross of Christ. Love is is indispensable in the life of a Christian. Helen Keller said, Love is like a beautiful flower which I may not touch, but whose fragrance makes the garden a place of delight just the same. Amy Carmichael said, Love through me, love of God. Make me like your clear air through which unhindered colors pass as though it were not there. Love is indispensable for the Christian and so we need this passage to teach us what does it mean to truly love this passage gives us three things the command to love first the urgency to love second and the power to love third there's our outline this is what our passage is showing us here is the command to love first the urgency to love second and the power to love third first, the command to love. God says you owe everyone love. God says it, you have to do it. Love is the right thing for a Christian to do. We see this in verses 8 through 10. Look at verse 8. This is the God word motivation. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Now, what triggered this for Paul? What triggered it was the believers' obligations to civil authorities. That's what triggered Paul concerning our debt of love to others. We saw last week that government is an agent of God to promote good and keep evil at bay. That we are to be grateful rather than grumbling or griping regarding governing authorities. That we owe governing authorities taxes and honor And respect. And that for a Christian, that is part of you loving Jesus. That is part of you obeying God. Loving others, though, more important. Far, far more important. And the reason we'll see now is that it fulfills what God says to do. It fulfills the purpose of the law. Verse 8 says, let no debt remain outstanding. Literally, do not keep on owing anyone anything except this continuing obligation, this continuing debt of loving one another. This passage is not against, you know, home loans and car loans and the proper use of credit or borrowing money. Deuteronomy 23 verse 19 and 20 says, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. You may charge a foreigner interest. Deuteronomy 24.10 says when you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, do not go into his house to collect. Like don't harass your neighbor about the loan that you gave them. Matthew 5.42 says do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The idea in this verse is that you need to pay all your debts when due. You're a Christian, you need to pay every one of your debts when they are due. If you owe someone, repay it quickly, repay it on time, be free of the obligation. But a Christian is never free from the obligation to love. Never. It always stands. The Bible teaches very clearly, love one another. Believers are commanded to love everyone. Jesus said in John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. And then he said, by this all people will know, if you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. First John 4, verses 7 and 8 says, Beloved believers, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. The obligation for a believer to love is constant. It is continuing. Your conscience is constrained by it. And as the law shows, which focuses on justice and mercy, it is indispensable. You must love. Verse 8 contains a god honoring assurance, really, that the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And verse 9 goes right into some of the Ten Commandments, literally four of the Ten Commandments. And it says, for the commandments, and, and four will be quoted here, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment. So all of the commandments of God are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All the commandments of God as it, they relate to social relationships. The proof that love fulfills the law, four of the Ten Commandments being quoted regarding social relationships from Exodus 20, from Deuteronomy 5. And love was required. In Leviticus 19, verse 18. It says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. God is saying, I'm God. I'm setting the rules. You need to love your neighbor as yourself. Don't take vengeance. Don't bear a grudge. Jesus was was tested in in Matthew 22. They're trying to, uh, to test him, and they say, what is the greatest command? And he says, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That is the great and first command. And then he said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two hang all the law and the prophets. On these two depend all of the law and the prophets. It was commanded. It was not optional. Now, many people misunderstand love. We think it's a feeling. We think that if we don't feel like we love someone anymore, that we can actually quit and switch. Love is not a feeling, and you see right here, it's, it's based on real choices to do no harm to anyone. Look at verse 10. Put your eyes on verse 10. Love, and here's the def- definition, does no wrong to a neighbor. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. No harm. Literally, love doesn't uh, doesn't keep on working evil. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. It's the fulfillment. So the second half of the Ten Commandments listed are, are formulated negatively, saying, here's the harm you should not do to people. Do not inflict these things on one another. Love, though, by definition, resists harming others. So if you're going to love other people well... Keep God's commands. Do what God says. And the fulfillment is this. If you fully love those around you, then you're going to avoid harming them through adultery and murder and theft and greed and contention and jealousy and the like. Love is a positive act. It's not limited to just avoiding certain sins. But it's incompatible with those sins. So it's gonna work for others good, not for others harm. Now a lot of people think, well if I just say I love you, that means I love you. But saying you love someone is not loving them, it is stating your intent to love them. A lot of people will say I love them but, and then they will talk behind someone's back and complain about what they don't like about the person and they'll say I love them but, as if that gives you license to talk behind someone's back, to gossip or slander or whatever you're going to do, and that's not God's way. That's not love. Love is seen in real action. If you love the right way that you're supposed to love, it's going to enhance your engagement in the truth, in the word of God, it's going to enhance your relationships with other people. And it's also going to enhance your engagement in the mission that Jesus has given us with the gospel. So if you're not loving the way that God intends and the way that God commands, it is going to hurt your engagement with the truth of God in the word of God. It's going to hurt your relationships with other people. And it's going to hinder your engagement in the mission that Jesus has given us in the gospel it's just one way or the other so positively you're to love one another as god has instructed negatively do no wrong to each other so there's both sides there love one another as yourself and do no wrong then you'll be fulfilling what god has said in his word now nowhere in the new testament is any writer speak more of love than paul and no more forcefully and clearly than in 1 Corinthians 13. Turn there with me. This is a very well-known passage of Scripture. You hear it usually at a wedding, right? 1 Corinthians 13, one says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. No one wants to hear that. He's talking to a church that has had trouble with their relationships. They have misunderstood God's word as it relates to gifts and in terms of leadership and all sorts of things. And he says, look, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, But have not love, I gain nothing. D.A. Carson described this in terms of divine mathematics. Five minus one equals zero. You can do all those things and not have love, nothing. Another said gifts minus love equals zero. Jonathan Edwards in his book, Charity and Its Fruits, summarizes God's perspective on love this way. God delights in little things when they spring from sincere love to himself. A cup of cold water given to a disciple in sincere love is worth more in God's sight than all of one's goods given to feed the poor, yea, than the wealth of the kingdom given away, or a body offered up in the flames without love. So how will you know if you're loving God? As God intends. How will you know? You can do some simple math. More people are going to be blessed by you than hurt by you. More people are going to be helped by you than hurt by you. The command is clear. God says, You owe everyone love without qualification. Love is the right thing to do, verses 8 through 10. Love is always the right thing to do, and the reason why? Because God says. But there's an urgency to this command that some miss. A lot of us like to live like this. You know, someday when I am a better Christian than I am now, someday when I grow more in Christ, someday when my relational issues are hammered out a little more, then I will do what God says. But until that time, I'm in crisis mode all the time. And what this passage is telling us is, there is an urgency to the command to love. I hope you see it here. God says love everyone now. He's basically saying now is the right time to love. There's the time-bound motivation And look at verse 11, here is why. Look at it. Besides this you know the time. He's not talking about time in in general. He's not talking about chronological time. They weren't wearing wristwatches. He's talking about an era, an an age, a period of time. A, A period of time that Paul's listeners and readers knew. And what he's saying is expressing love is our constant responsibility for a believer who understands the time. Literally, who knows the season they're in. And the idea is it's, it's the season of, God, of Christ's imminent return. Verse 11 says, the hour has come. First John 2, 18 says, it is the last hour. You have heard that Antichrist is coming, and now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. We are living in the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And it's not on your calendar when he's going to come again. Just like it's not on your calendar when you're going to die. Both of those things only God knows. OGK, right? The hour has come. In fact, it says in verse 11, the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. Now, if I'm preaching right now and you're asleep, wake up. This is talking about waking up from sleep in a metaphorical way. Now think about the example he's using. People in Rome in those days would would rise very early in the morning before it was daybreak because they had to really take advantage of the daylight hours. So eight or nine in the morning was like really late in the morning. And so the idea is the period of time that we are living in with regard to God's saving purposes in the gospel is like the hour where it's right before dawn and it's about to get light. Now, in those days, getting up out of bed was not as complicated as, as it is for us. You know, we wake up and we hit snooze, you know, how many times, right? Or we say, oh, you know, I've got so much to do before i get up i'm going to start looking at my phone doing emails or texts i'm not going to get up yet i'll start working in bed or even i didn't brush my teeth or floss last night i got to get that and then i've got to shower and find clothes to wear and eat breakfast and i'll probably be late this morning wherever i'm going but in those days getting up was very simple very speedy bedrooms were small houses were small uh, they didn't wear special bed clothes for sleeping. Um, beds were plain. You just Literally, there was little time between leaping out of bed and leaving the house. There, there's hardly any time at all. You would be wearing a loincloth, and you would throw on a tunic and get out of there. Literally, up and at them right now. So when he says it's, it's time for you to get up and wake up, what's he referring to? Sleep here, waking up from sleep, is the idea of not having uh, spiritual apathy or spiritual lethargy or the unresponsiveness to God. It's a metaphor for spiritual insensitivity, sleep. And he's saying there is a time now for every Christian to be spiritually alert. Time to get up, time to spring into action. In the Old Testament, Isaiah 51, 17 this word. uh, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. Don't be insensitive uh, to God. Don't be unresponsive. Isaiah 52, 1, awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments. Be sensitive to who God is and what he's calling you to do. Isaiah 60, verse 1, arise, shine, for your light has come. Why would we need to be told to wake up today? And it's very simple. We have a, a tendency, spiritually speaking, to fall asleep at the wheel, to doze off, uh, to get lazy, to drift away from the gospel. We're prone to wander. 1 Peter 5, 8 tells us, be sober-minded, be on the alert. You've got to be awake and ready to do that because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So Be alert. And the idea here in this passage is we need to be urgent in showing love to others because God has called us to the task of loving others with gospel love. And there is a limited amount of time with which to do it. The day of Christ's return is not on your calendar. The day of your death is not on your calendar. God has called us to a task and there is a limited amount of time remaining to do it. It says for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. We're not talking about justification here. We're talking about the final stage of redemption. We're talking about glorification. It's nearer to us now than when we first believed. We will be glorified when Christ returns. We are one step closer every day, one step closer to home. What motivates our living? Christ's return. This is talking about ultimate salvation at the return of Christ. The judge is standing at the door. Every day brings final deliverance one step closer. Every moment, you're closer to glorification now than when you woke up this morning. Second Corinthians 6 tells us, now is the time for salvation. Now. There's a reason for this urgency. It's the gospel reason. If you're not a Christian today, you need to hear what 1 John 4, 9 through 11 says. And if you are a Christian today, you need to hear about what these verses say too. It says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the propitiation for our sins, literally the mercy seat sacrifice for our sins. Literally the merciful sacrifice would hold back the wrath of God against our sins and extend grace to us so that we would be saved you're not a believer today, you need to believe that word, that that Jesus died for your sins in your place on the cross, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead on the third day, that he is coming back. It's an imminent return. And if you're a Christian today, you need to believe because John said, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another in that sacrificial way, in that beautiful way, because we're living in a critical moment of salvation history. We're always living in a critical moment of salvation history if you're a believer this side of the cross. We will always say, well, today's world is so critical. We're living in a critical moment in human history. And I would just say, oh no. We're we're living in a critical moment of salvation history. That should be the believer's mindset. And so loving others and not being self-centered in our living ought to be uh, what marks us that we best be ready with the gospel, that we best be ready for this urgency because verse 12, the very first part of verse 12 says, the night is on and the day is at hand. You see that? It's it's almost daybreak. Spiritually speaking, night is the present evil age of man's depravity and and Satan's activity and, and Satan deceiving those that don't believe, blinding the minds of the unbelieving. 2 Corinthians 4.4. The day, though, the day of Christ's return and the final salvation that will will come is at hand. It's near. It's nearer than you think. 2 Peter 1.19 says, we have the prophetic word made more fully confirmed to us to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. You see the metaphors there. Until the day dawns. And the morning star rises in your hearts. The word of God has told us that Christ is returning. Old Testament prophets used to use the phrase the day of the Lord to talk about the day that that God would save his people and judge his enemies. The New Testament writers adopted the same term, the day of the Lord, the day of Christ, the time of salvation blessing, the the time of Christ's return. That is the day. Everyone who has believed the gospel and and been saved you are living in a crucial critical moment of salvation history it's before christ comes to restore justice and peace to the earth and so we should be reflecting this this future restoration in our living that's why we're to love we're to love because we're ambassadors for christ we're ambassadors of christ god making his appeal through us that people would be reconciled to god because of the gospel and it's, it's nighttime, it says, but, but it's the last part of the nighttime. Believers need to be awake, ready to engage the new day. Don't receive God's grace in vain. Don't miss the opportunity. Don't think someday when I get my act together. Think now. Think urgency. Augustine asked the question, what does love look like? Answer, it has the hands to help others. It has the feet to hasten to the poor and needy. It has eyes to see misery and want. It has the ears to hear the sighs and sorrow of men. This is what love looks like. And this passage is telling us that that love acts now. That you see a need and you don't wait. Because the command to love, where you owe everyone love, is urgent. It is urgent. God says, love Everyone, now, now is the right time to do it. And the power with which you do that is the power of God. I want you to look at the last part of verse 12 and then into verse 13 and 14 with me. But the power to love is is where God says love everyone in, in my strength. Your love is enabled by Christ, believer. You need to choose to love knowing that you're motivated inwardly and enabled by Jesus Christ look at the last part of verse 12 it says so then so we're to love and we're to love in an urgent way now before Christ returns love people with the gospel and then it says so then let us cast off the works of darkness now we're back in the metaphor aren't we Criminals and carousers act under the cover of darkness usually. It says cast off, literally throw off. It's flinging off the blankets in the morning. 1 Peter 2.1 says put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, all slander. In light of Christ's imminent return, repent and forsake of your sins and then put on. And that would have given the idea of putting on the long shirt or tunic that people in Roman times wore over their loincloth that they slept in, but here it doesn't say that. It says, "Put on the armor of light." Now there's a sudden change of metaphor, from putting clothes on to taking up weapons." And it reflects Isaiah 59 verses 17 and 18, where, where God himself puts on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head and does what the Redeemer is going to do. In Isaiah, this, this would be speaking of the time that the Redeemer would come to Zion and people would turn from their sins. That The Lord took, takes up the right weapons of righteousness and salvation because people had refused to act rightly. They had pursued violence They had pursued lies and oppression. And God says, I'm going to do what I have promised will happen. Even for a believer today, we know what God provides, the protection that God provides his people. Ephesians 6, 10 and 11 says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you would withstand the devil's schemes. See, the day is almost here. Put away, put aside the deeds of darkness. Put on the armor of light. The word of God, prayer, faith, the gospel, truth. Be soldiers in battle alert and ready because now is the time to throw off the covers. Now is the time to put the clothes on. Now is the time to pick up the weapons of love and fight for gospel purposes. All you have is today spend today wisely live consistent with god's end times purposes love others as yourself and behave in ways that are described in verse 13 look at verse 13 let us walk properly as in the daytime walk it means to live it means to conduct yourself appropriately so the, the picture here is you're out of bed, you're properly dressed, you're, you're behaving with proper respect during the time when people worked at their trade or conducted business or tended households. The idea is to act appropriately, behave appropriately, ready for good. Ready to do people good, not harm. In this critical time of salvation history, focus your energy on showing gospel love to others Don't focus your energy on foolish behavior. It says not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in revelry, not wild parties and brawls and riots, not in lewdness and lust, and also not in quarreling and jealousy, not in basically contention and strife and envy. This is looking ahead to what we're gonna see next week in Romans 14, where he's urging divided believers to be unified in love. But these things that are listed, that you're to take off, they're always incompatible with following Jesus. They're never the right thing to do. These kind of sins in those days would have taken place in the the nighttime hours in Rome. The leadership of Rome was notorious for extreme debauchery. But it's very clear that such activities would be out of place during normal working hours. That even the worst of the worst in Rome would not party at work when their survival uh, depended on their mental focus and their hard labor. And the idea here for us as believers is believers need to work all day, every day, engaged in gospel work of loving others. You say, well, I don't have a ministry. Oh, yes, you do. Whoever you are near, whoever you know, whoever you, you live with, whoever you work with, whoever you interact with, whoever you run into, Walk properly as in the daytime. Ephesians 4, 17 to 24 says, don't walk any longer like the Gentiles do. They have futility of mind. They they become hardened in their hearts. They become calloused. They've given themselves up to sensuality and be greedy for all kinds of impurity. But then he says to believers, that is not the way you learned Christ. So stop it. (laughs) He's like, I've heard uh, you were taught. uh, The truth is in Christ. Put off your old self. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Ephesians 5, 11 through 14 says, take no part in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. Just confess your own sins. It's shameful to speak of the things they do in secret. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. And it's kind of 1 John 1 stuff where we confess our sins and God is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then it says this, Therefore, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look at verse 14. The key to the whole passage here. Verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So now we move from putting clothes on to putting a person on. What does it mean to put on Jesus? And then it says... Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So, what does it mean to put on Jesus? And how do you stop making provision to gratify your fleshly desires? I mean, you might even ask the question can I still enjoy a good burger? Can I have sushi? Can I have pizza with anchovies? Because it says, I can't gratify my fleshly desires, and I want all of those things. What does this mean to put on Jesus? And let me give you the four words that tell you what it means. Look at those words, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's fixated on Christ, the King, the Savior, the authority. And what this is saying to us, as, as it says, to put him on, It refers to your union as a believer with the crucified, risen, and coming again Savior. Now, that union happened when you believed the gospel and were saved. But it still is getting fully worked out. That's why Philippians 2 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because it is God who is at work in you to will and do his good pleasure." Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What that signifies is your union with Christ and your sanctification that is ongoing. This continuing process where those saved by grace through faith in Christ are transformed into Christ's image and likeness. Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on, as Ephesians 4.24 says, the new self. Where you lean into that, where you want that, where you don't just say, well, I have fire insurance. No, I want to please God with every ounce of my being. When you wake up in the morning and you say, Lord Jesus, thank you for keeping me alive as I slept and Lord, this day is yours. Your will be done, I yield to your purposes. Sanctification. By the way, it's not instant, it's not easy. Growing in Christ is gradual, it's gracious, but it's trial and error, isn't it? It's trial and error process. The Spirit of God using the Word of God in a yielded soul. You don't know the cumulative effect of the Word of God on a soul until you notice how life-altering it has been in your life, where you go through hardship, but you also know that God glorifies Himself in your heart and causes you to delight in christ that you can savor the glory of god in the gospel that you can see the majesty of the gospel revealed to god as you're going through tough times and then you see the last part of verse 14 you're putting on the lord jesus so you're not going to be making provision for your flesh to gratify its desires the provision here means to plan ahead means to have forethought Most of our sinful behavior is just wrong motives and ideas and desires that we just coddle and and just let fester in our hearts and our minds. Let me tell you how putting on Jesus makes a difference in your heart, in your home, in the household of God. What kind of difference does that make? Knowing Christ, that you seek to worship God, that you seek to have good relationships with other people, and that you seek to live on mission for Jesus and the gospel. The thing is, as a believer, you are now enabled to do so. Like, you actually have the power to say no to sin. That you actually can stop planning out ways to indulge sin or to divide people. That you have the power of God. That Jesus lives in you. And then you are encouraged in Christ. Do you know, if you're a believer, you, you get to do anything that pleases God. No prohibition on doing what is right and good and true. This is like a diet where they would say to you, you get to eat anything you want as long as it's good for you. Make provision. You're going to plan out what pleases God. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. That Jesus died for all, therefore who, that, that all died and those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf because the gospel changes your heart. And and then you you go, wow, I love Jesus. And I'm actually, even though it's painful, I'm gonna say no to myself, because it actually becomes joyful to love Jesus and say no to myself. We saw this earlier in chapter 12. All who trust Christ's sacrifice for sin fully yield themselves to him. And it happens again and again and again. God keeps you in his love. God motivates you to love, but you have a part to play. You have to choose. The Bible makes it really clear. A Christian needs to pursue love. A Christian needs to abide in Christ's love. A Christian needs to live in love. You can't just say, well, I'm a Christian, so God's just gonna do all the work for me. You actually have to want to do that. You actually have to consider how to love one another and consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds. What have you been planning out for Christians recently? Is it evil or is it good? Are you planning out how you're gonna spur on other Christians to love and good deeds? the biblical model is love grounded in the local church it is not solo operation what it looks like is Romans chapter 12 Romans chapter 13 Romans chapter 14 15 and 16 and every one another in the entire New Testament love is a group experience we grow in love by relating to others not alone You learn to love by living in the painful reality and the joyful reality of relating with other sinners who are being saved by the grace of God, who is a very diverse group of believers in close community, in close connection, and if you're not involved like that, you are not learning to love, but when you live like that, you're energized by Christ. Uh, You're refreshed in your soul. Uh, God revives your your mind as the Spirit uses the Word of God, along with other believers in your life, as almost like an IV on your soul. It's basically love or die. Love or die. That was Jesus' wake-up call to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. He says to that church, I know your works. I know your endurance. I know your patience. I know you're bearing up for my name's sake. I know you haven't grown weary, but I have this against you. So Jesus had something against the church in Ephesus. What was it? He said, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Love for Christ, love for one another. And he says to them this. Here's the solution. Remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the things you did at first. Remember what God once enabled you to do. Repent of of, of the sins that you committed and then re-engage in the works that God has called you to but you've abandoned. I wonder if the church in Ephesus took heed to that loving rebuke from Jesus. Church history helps us a little bit here. In 107 AD, Ignatius was arrested for his faith and was taken to Rome to be executed. And he was passing by Ephesus and a delegation from the church in Ephesus came to encourage him as he was about to face a martyr's death. And after they came to him, he wrote them a letter before he died, and he thanked them for their care. And here is what he said about them. He said, you are a church characterized by faith in and love of Christ Jesus our Savior. He said, your pastor is a man of inexpressible love. He said, in the love shown to me by that group, I saw the love of the whole church. Sounds like, quite possibly they obeyed Jesus' loving rebuke. And as I've been thinking about this, I wonder, my own heart, and us as a church, if we might not also be rebuked by Jesus in a similar way. You're doing this, you're doing that, you believe this, you believe that, but you have forgotten the love you had at first that we might get the same rebuke from Jesus who walks among us unseen and he sees everything. And I hope that if that happened, we would be humbled by grace and I hope that we would repent of our sins. What the absence of love is like? It's like slow rolling fog like we had this morning earlier today if you were up then. And you might even say, well, I haven't had such a loving week or month, or year, or life. But isn't it true that God has loved us so well? Isn't it true? So why not let the love of God overwhelm and melt your heart? D.L. Moody tells the story of a life-changing uh, encounter with the biblical doctrine of love. Uh, this happened in the late 1800s. Um, Henry Morehouse is a 27-year-old of British evangelist who preached at Moody's church seven days in a row, and he preached John 3.16 seven days in a row. He wanted to prove that God so loved the world, so he preached on the love of God from Genesis to Revelation. And Moody's son wrote in, in 1900 of his father's description of the impact of that preaching. Here's what he said. For six nights he preached on this one text. The seventh night came. He went into the pulpit. Every eye was on him. He said, beloved friends, I have been hunting all day for a new text, but I cannot find anything so good as the old one. So we will go back to the third chapter of John in the 16th verse. And he preached the seventh sermon from those wonderful words, God so loved the world. He says, I remember the end of the sermon where he said, my friends, for a whole week I've been trying to tell you how much God loves you, but I cannot do it with this poor stammering tongue. If I could borrow Jacob's ladder and climb into heaven and ask Gabriel, who stands in the presence of the Almighty, to tell me how much love the Father has for the world, all he could say would be, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Moody was unable to hold back the tears as Morehouse preached on God's love and sending his only son to die for sinners. And Moody said this, I never knew up to that time that God loved us so much. This heart of mine began to thaw out. I could not hold back the tears. It was like news from a far country. I just drank it in. I tell you that there's one thing that draws above everything else in the world, and that is love. As a result of that, the influence of that preaching of Morehouse, Moody began to study the doctrine of love. It changed his life. It changed his preaching. He said later, I, I took up that word love. I, I do not know how many weeks I spent studying the passages in which it occurs, till at last I could not help loving people. I had been feeding so long on love that I was anxious to do everyone good that I came in contact with. He says, take up the subject of love in the Bible. You will get so full of love that all you have got to do is open your lips and a flood of the love of God flows out because God's work cannot be done without love. You see, you, you don't accidentally love. You purposefully love. It takes an act of your will. Your feelings will follow after. Our problem is we have this warped view of love. We think it's an emotion when it's a choice. We don't feel it anymore, we quit and switch. And then someone else becomes a victim of, of our mismanaged affections. We fear being taken advantage of if we love too much so we just kind of hold back. We talk ourselves out of the duty to love. Love originates in God. Love is given by him. It is energized by him. It is sustained by him. And the greatest display we have of the love of God is the death of Christ in the place of lost sinners. Christ's substitutionary death for his enemies. That's the pinnacle of love. It is our supreme example. There is this command embedded so deeply to love. It's always the right thing to do. The need is so urgent. We must do it now. The power to love is God's. We must trust Christ as we love. Just don't talk yourself out of it. Take the leap of faith in love. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that now is the right time to show love to all. In Christ's strength and for his glory, in light of his imminent return, we love you, Lord Jesus, because you first loved us. And we pray in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.